Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and family and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Listener discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook, the DJ Burr on Instagram, and at djburr1022 on Twitter. Hi, I'm, a, I'm Dak Wasson. I'm a chemical dependency counselor and a certified sex addiction therapist candidate here in Seattle. I'm the director of a McPherson Pacific Counseling Services, which is a glorified way of saying my own private practice. <laughs> um, meeting with a meeting with individuals and families who are in some phase of the recovery process. So Dak, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for being on. I, you know, on our show, we, we talk to individuals, either licensed professionals or folks in recovery um, from a variety of behaviors, uh, behavioral addictions or substance addictions. And we also talk to lay people, just people who may be familiar with addictions. And what we want to know is what makes an addict? So I know that you are in the profession and you work with people in the community who are suffering from addiction. And I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts? What makes someone an addict? Well, wow, what a, um, what a question. The short answer is, geez, I'm not sure. I guess the long answer is that there's a, there's a tremendous amount that goes into it. You know, I, um, my background is a, is a recovery person myself, and my initial training was in abstinence-based chemical dependency treatment. So what I initially learned was that there was a genetic component, and because of a dysfunction of the central nervous system, particularly in the pleasure-reward pathways of the, of the brain, um, we're hardwired to be, uh, to be an addict the same way we're hardwired to be left-handed. So that was my thinking initially, and uh, I think that there is some truth to that. I think it's far more complicated than that. One of the things I've kind of discovered, you know, during my during my experience helping uh, helping people find recovery, is that the, um, the the object of the addiction, whether it's a drug or alcohol or whether it's a behavior, is a um, or tends to be maybe a um, a coping skill, an attempt to self-soothe, self-medicate, that works in some ways, but leads to, leads to other problems of its own. So I think the, uh, the, um, the addiction, or rather the addictive action, is a, is a maladaptive coping skill, and I think there's a genetic predisposition involved, but there's also a lot more. Um, for example, if I learn that having a drink makes me, um, makes me, uh, you know, rely, or if I'm, if I'm suffering with, or struggling with some difficult emotion, 
um, usually at an early age before I've, uh, you know, had the opportunity to negotiate all these learning experiences in life. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble at home. Mom and dad aren't doing well together and they're taking it out on me. It's a hypothetical scenario. Um, and so I have this difficult emotion that I'm dealing with. Fear. Is it fear? Is it shame? Am I blaming myself? I don't know. I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm 13 years old. I'm 12 years old. I've never dealt with this sort of stuff before. Um, and I think part of growing up in life is sitting with that, making mistakes, figuring out how to deal with that emotion. Is this emotion dangerous? What does this emotion mean to me? Uh, that's part of the maturing process, I think, ideally. Well, what I learned and what other people learn is this sort of kind of shortcut. And I'm oversimplifying here. But uh, a drink or a drug, if I'm feeling frightened or ashamed and I, uh, I, I you know, take, a, take a bottle out of the liquor cabinet down in the basement and have a drink and suddenly I don't feel so frightened as ashamed for a minute, um, I learn something. That's important information. I learned that what do I do with this difficult emotion? Well, I turn it down with a, with a drink or a drug. And then that gets imprinted sort of on the operating instructions of the, uh, you know, the computer that is the human body. And so next time there's a difficult emotion, I remember, maybe not consciously, but in, my, in kind of like the blueprint of how to behave in the world, so the operating instructions, I remember that what do I do with this emotion? Well, I turn it down somehow. Drink or a drug work better than just about anything else in the world for that. And I think that that has a lot to do with, um, with what makes an addict. And I think there's a, I think the genetic piece kind of plays alongside that piece because generally, you know, if I, uh, if I have a drink and it works and okay, that's great. Then I have another one and it works and okay, that's great. And then I have a drink and I drink a little bit more and I get in trouble at school or my mom catches me drinking and I start to experience negative consequences, generally you would think, I would say, oh, I guess this tool doesn't work after all. Um, and this is where maybe the, uh, maybe the physiological piece comes in where rationally, I know, no, no, this doesn't work, but the, uh, you know, the pleasure centers of the brain sort of overrule that critical thinking, that rational thought. So uh, that's a long way of saying, I think that it's a, it's a combination of both nature and nurture. I, uh, I believe I could be wrong. I'm open to being wrong, but I believe that there are some people that would never become an addict, regardless of the kinds, amounts, and frequencies of substances and behaviors that they use. Um, and then there are some people who are at a higher danger of becoming an addict. So that's my experience. And I'm always, if you'd have asked me three years ago what I thought, I'd have given you a different answer. So we'll see where I am three years from now. But that's, that's, a, that's a snapshot of my thinking at this point in my career. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate the way that you kind of gave us like the clinical aspect of it. And also, it seemed like some personal uh, information as well in terms of you being able to look at like a family system and being able to identify how, you know, a 13-year-old might be trying to numb their experience, their feelings, and they might reach out and take a drink or a drug, and then if they have some negative consequences, they may or may not continue to move forward with that process. You know, I think a lot of people don't think about that, and sometimes people are just stuck into the, the hard wiring of our brains, but sometimes we do have a choice, right? So I, I heard something really interesting when you first started. You said uh, about being hardwired. Was that something that you, you learned in, in your training or something that you have come to believe based on your own personal experience? Well, that's something that I learned in my training, but my personal experience, both in my own recovery and, and in uh, the, 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 the community that I work with, sort of supports that. There's not a lot 
there are some, but most people I know who themselves struggle with addiction have family members who struggle with addiction. I mean, sometimes we say it's a family disease and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so that would suggest, at least anecdotally, that there's a, that there's a physiological component to it. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't prove it, but I, that's some pretty compelling evidence. Um, also, what I know about the way the central nervous system works, there, there, um, it makes sense that there is some, I guess we could call it dysfunction, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the way that we absorb and process and uh, um, the neurotransmitters, the drugs and alcohol and compulsive behaviors and any pleasurable experience really uh, manipulates. Yeah. So I'm convinced, I'm, 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 I'm quite convinced there's a genetic, or, or a, um, you know, a physio- physiological piece to it. Um, that said, I don't think it's a, it's a sentence written in stone the way I might have been trained to believe. Okay. But there's no doubt in my mind that, that there's a, that there's a, that there's a physiological piece. You know, in, in my, in my, uh, in my situation, for example, neither of my parents are addicts. However, both of my grandparents, my grandfather on each side of my family died of alcoholism. Cousins, uncles, throughout the family tree have struggled with drugs and alcohol, and I would imagine compulsive behavior that doesn't get us quite as much airplay at the family reunions. But um, there's addiction everywhere, and, uh, and that can't be a coincidence. Did you know that growing up that your, your grandparents uh, suffered from addiction? No. Well, actually, when I, my grandpa, my dad's dad died when I was quite young. He died when I was, geez, I must have been six years old. I couldn't have been any older than six. And I have, I have very vague memories of him. Now, he died sober. My grandpa, okay. my grandpa Jack died sober. He was from Battle Lake, Minnesota, way up north in, uh, in Minnesota. That's where my dad was born and raised. And um, Grandpa Jack was an AA guy, and he died, with, he died in the early 80s with quite a bit of sobriety. And I remember, I didn't know that at the time, but I remember Grandpa's funeral. Uh, the, you know, the town where, 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 he, where he spent all of his life was about the size of this office we're in right now. It was tiny. And um, I'd spent my summers up there since I was a baby. And at his funeral, there was the family. You know, I saw grandma, I saw my uncles and my aunts and my cousins, and I knew who they were. And I even saw some people that I recognized from around town. But there were many, many, many people. And I remember this very, very clearly. So it was when I was five, maybe six years old. I remember this very clearly. There was a whole lot of people there just kind of milling around. You know, this is kind of farmer country, kind of north central Minnesota just kind of milling around, hanging in the back. They weren't dressed for church, I remember theirs. And these were, they were clearly blue-collar guys. And I remember asking my dad, it's one of my earliest clear memories, I asked my dad, who are dad, who the hell are all these people? And my dad said, well, those are grandpa's alcoholic friends. No idea what that meant at that point in my life. But what I learned later in life, and and in my own, and certainly when I entered my own recovery, was that uh, my grandpa Jack was a low-bottom, Hopeless, no future, alcoholic, in the uh, in the early '40s, and then when there was that article in the Saturday Evening Post by Jack Alexander talking about this crazy thing that was happening in New York and Akron, Ohio, called Alcoholics Anonymous, and they were deluged with a uh, with requests from all over the country for more information. My grandpa and some of his buddies were some of those people. So my grandpa was one of the ones who was responsible for bringing Alcoholics Anonymous to Ottertail County in Minnesota. And he, uh, he got sober in the early 40s. My dad was born in 1942 and says he has no memories of grandpa drinking. 
he, he remembers grandpa going over to Fargo to meet with uh, to meet with someone at the hospital. So my grandpa was a he was a he was a recovering alcoholic for many 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 years before he died, and uh, didn't mean a lot to me growing up. But today I take a lot of pride in that. I have a I have a um, a dime. It's kind of a corny joke that uh, my dad gave me that belonged to my grandpa, and he kept this dime on his keychain. According to my dad, who knows if it's actually true, kept this dime on his keychain so that if he ever needed to call another alcoholic, he had a dime. It shows you that they had corny jokes in recovery all the way back to the 40s. Um, and I have that, and I, I really, really value that. I really treasure that. You know, I don't have a lot of clear memories of my grandpa. I remember riding in the truck with him and things like that. But the fact that we both had a pretty transformative experience with uh, with alcoholism and recovery, that that means a lot to me. So I knew, I knew to answer your question, yeah, I knew that there was addiction in my family. What I really knew was that there was recovery in my family. And um, I remember, I remember when I was struggling, this was, geez, I must have been in my mid-twenties at this time. And I was living in the Midwest and um, I was struggling with drugs and alcohol and everybody knew it but me. And I remember, um, I remember I, I decided I was going to ask for some help. The first time I've ever asked for help around drugs and alcohol, it might have actually been the first time I've asked for help around anything. And I went to my dad, and oh man, I was scared. Oh boy, this was, I was really swallowing my pride here. And I remember I said, Dad, I think I've got a problem with alcohol. And this was like, this took like the greatest act of courage, and I assumed at the time, because it was really, really scary. And my dad's reaction was, yeah, no shit. You have a problem. <laughs> he knew. He knew from day one. He knew from day one what uh, what the situation was because of his because of his experience with uh with his dad's recovery, and he said something to me. My dad said a lot of things to me that have stuck with me, but this this might be the might be the the biggest one. He said. He said, yeah, a lot of your uh, a lot of your cousins are struggling with the with the drink and the drug, and, and my brother, my dad's brother, my uncle really struggled with it and then he, he said something it's kind of like a toss-off I'm sure he doesn't remember this but he said why didn't it happen to me grace of God was his suggestion that was the best he could do to explain and um and that really stuck with me mm. so yeah I, I knew that there was addiction in my family and I also knew that there was recovery that's amazing that you knew that there was recovery because that's not something I hear very often right. that people grow up witnessing recovery yeah well mind you i didn't witness it was more family legend because grandpa died when i was quite young and like i said my um neither of my parents had much i mean they're normal drinkers as far as i can tell and i don't have brothers and sisters so my um my experience with the family's recovery and addiction was uh you know just kind of removed i don't know i didn't live i didn't grow up with my family my extended family so this was just from stories and now as an adult uh you know i've become close to some of my cousins and we have I imagine some of the teachings that your grandfather probably taught your dad probably trickled down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. that's a that's a great point. Yeah, I learned a lot of recovery lessons without realizing that they were recovery lessons. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so you can pass that on too yep. and have the lived experience of it. Right, right. So when you got knowledgeable about your problem uh -huh. and you saw help from your dad, um, you guys had that talk and then what happened? Well, then really nothing happened, you know, then, then you know, and I, and then I, I got some help. I went to, um, did I go to treatment at the time? I don't know if I did. I went to, like many addicts, in fact, probably like every addict, 
I'll have, I had a, my story involved like a window of willingness. Oh man, I gotta change, I gotta make some moves here. Something's gotta change. Right. And that window would shut pretty quickly. Or maybe I would walk through that window and actually agree to go to treatment or start checking out these meetings or take some action. And then I would walk right back through the other side of the window if they're going to have to kick it in. So I know I am, there was a lot of time passed between that first, hey man, something's got to change, and long-term recovery, which is what I have now. And, um, and, I, and, and I had been, like, like most people in recovery, I, uh, I had had exposure to uh, the, pro- the program of recovery, treatment and AA and stuff before I was anywhere near being willing to recognize that it was for me. I went to my first AA meeting. In fact, my fir- the first time anybody really that had any sort of authority over me urged me to seek recovery was, I mean, this is going to be no surprise to anybody, it was the criminal justice system. Okay. I got in trouble. And, um, and part, of, uh, part of what I had to do was go to AA meetings to uh, as a condition of my probation, so I w- went to these AA meetings, and this was when I was living in Alachua County, Florida. I was living in Gainesville, Florida, in 1999, and um, go to these meetings, get this slip sign, and say, "Man, this isn't for me. Man, I don't belong here. Man, this is not fair that I have to be here." Couldn't see the connection. I've heard that before. Yeah, it, I'm not unique at all. I think that might be. I think that might be standard. <laughs> but it was. It wasn't until years later when I said, "Whoa." I really got a problem here. <laughs> what was it that? Whoa, what was that? It could have been anything. In fact, uh, what I found pretty, what I found interesting is in my experience and maybe in other people's experience, but in my experience, the whoa moments were objectively not as bad as some of the moments that got me into some real trouble. You know, I've, uh, I'm, I'm no bad guy and I'm certainly not a tough guy, but I got into some scrapes, man. Like I, I, I've been arrested and spent some time in jail and, and lost jobs and slept on the street and just objectively had a pretty low bottom. Mm. But when I was sleeping in a hollow tree because of my addiction, I didn't say, wow, something's got to change. I said, wow, life's just not fair. Wow, poor me. Wow, I can't believe these people did this to me. I can't believe she kicked me out. I can't believe they fired me. Mm. It was um, when I find when I had those moments where I said, "Geez, man, I got to change." It was generally when something pretty minor happened. Yeah. In fact, kind of a funny story. The strongest, oh my God, something has to change moment was uh, <laughs> came came right before I finally got sober. My uh, it got to a point where my folks they did the they did the they did the detaching with love, and they said, "We're not gonna you know don't." Come around the home. Don't uh, ask for money. If you're uh, if you're willing to get help, we'll support you and we'll help you get in touch with some some help. But we're gonna have to cut you off, man. And uh, then one night I called him up in a blackout in the middle of the night and said, "I'm ready, man. I'm ready to get some help. I want some help." And I remember I woke up and I was at their home. They were living in Muhammad, Illinois, and I was living in Champaign, Illinois. Long story, but I woke up in their home. It took me a minute to see what was going. How did I end up at my folks' home? What happened here? I don't remember. Hey, I remember I was at, okay, what happened here? And then my dad came in and I figured out what happened. I had called and asked for some help. I said I wanted to go to treatment. And that was when I said, oh my God, I've got a problem here. I got so drunk, I agreed to go to treatment. I got a change. And that's a true story. But, um, but it, was, it was it was things like that, you know? If I, uh, if I had a scrape with a girlfriend at the time or if uh, it was it objectively... 
the moments that really opened my eyes where I really made it a resolve of some kind to make a diff- to make a change weren't really the bad ones. Do you know what you were trying to numb? Mm, I don't think it's that simple. I uh, I do know that. Well, I just didn't have any self confidence, and I hated myself. You know, I am. Um, Growing up, I was angry. Ooh, boy, I was angry, and I didn't know what I was angry at. In fact, I didn't even know that I was angry. Right. But um, I just didn't have any confidence. I didn't do particularly well in school, so I learned that I was was one of the dumb kids. That was the way I understood myself. Mm-hmm. I um, I was I was kind of it was a behavioral problem. I was just kind of a spasticated little kid, so I kind of and I was always getting in trouble. So I like learned that I was the handful. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of I learned, kind of imprinted on my, like, who am I experience was that I was bad and somehow. And, um, you know, my, my mom and dad, God bless them, I love them to death, and they did the best they can, and they were wonderful parents. But I come from a military, my dad was a colonel in the Marine Corps, and there wasn't a lot of like, well, that's good, let's try another way. There was no try it again, no try it again. And I understand it, like we were talking about earlier, I understand that now, and I love and respect and appreciate all that my dad did for me. But growing up, I learned a pretty difficult lesson from that. So I just didn't have a lot of, uh, I just didn't have a lot of self-confidence. I didn't have a lot of faith in myself. And I, uh, a little bit later in life, or actually, you know, when I was 12, 13, I discovered I was, I mean, I was an athlete and I had some success. In fact, initially I went to college to play sports. But even when I would, even in that arena, even when I, you know, when I would win my matches, win a tournament or something, I felt like I was getting away with something. I pulled another fast one on them, and this is the time that they're gonna figure out that it's all a fraud. I just didn't have any self-confidence, and that, that affected everything. And then I remember the first time somebody put a beer in front of me, the first time I had a taste of alcohol. Hmm. Well, forget it, man. All of my problems were solved. Why didn't anyone tell me about this earlier? I mean, I remember that very clearly. In fact, removed from context, bang for your buck, in the moment, it was the greatest moment of my life, first tasted alcohol I ever had because it took care of everything, DJ. I, everything was okay. You started to feel better about yourself? In the 20, 30 minutes that I was drinking, right. yeah. I, didn't, I don't know if I felt better about myself. In fact, I know I didn't feel better about myself. It just didn't matter. All didn't of my matter. problems were so I found the solution. And that was pretty much it. I mean, at that point, I didn't care about much else at all. Hmm. Um, I had I had my first drink a little bit later in life than uh, than most people do. I was I was 18 before I had so much as a taste of beer, and immediately, not gradually, immediately it became the only thing that mattered to me. Uh, wrestling wasn't important anymore. Girls weren't important. Friendships weren't important. School was never important, so that didn't change. But my number one priority became doing this again. So did you miss out on wrestling and yeah. relationships mm-hmm. and friendships? Yeah, I absolutely did. I was I was pretty isolated to begin with. I became very, very isolated. And fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, my behavior under the influence put people off. I mean, I wasn't aggressive. I wasn't violent. But I was just, I mean, I was just a mess. There was no elegantly wasted about it. I was just a mess, an emotional mess, and I was just no fun to spend time with. So uh, the the loneliness and the isolation that I felt initially just got exacerbated 
except for the periods of time that I was under the influence of alcohol and pretty soon thereafter became drugs and different behaviors. But that was my solution. Mm. And if that was all there was to it, that would be all there was to it and that might still be my solution today. For better or worse, ultimately definitely for better, I ended up creating horrible consequences for myself and those around me. behaved in in unconscionable ways, which uh, led me to that point where I was like, wait a minute, this is my solution, but now this is causing problems in itself. Something has to change. Hmm. Didn't do well with that recognition, so I stayed in that, on that, kind of sitting on that fence for several years. But uh, yeah, yeah, the, when I, when I first had my first drink of alcohol, and later on my first drug, problem solved. This was it. I I figured it out. Hmm. And I pursued that nearly to nearly to the death of me and how long were you in your active addiction mm, I uh, 11 12 years let's see I, uh, I like I said I had my first drink of alcohol the age of 17 18 17 or 18 and uh, and I finally got sober at the age of 29 and, uh, and I'm 40 now, so if I, if I stay sober for the rest of my life, and I certainly plan to, um, it will be just a 12-year detour. <laughs> but, but that said, I feel like the addiction, or what we're going to call the addiction, was present, geez, from day one, you know? I mean, it, I mean, it was present when I had that first drink, you know? Yeah. And, and looking back, I find that in some of my some of my behaviors, you know, I wanted to be okay somehow, you know, I just desperately wanted someone to tell me or show me or demonstrate in some way that I was all right, you know, I, um, and I used wrestling for that, I got, I, I, I got accolades in, in, in wrestling, but I didn't accept them, oh, they, they don't know, they don't know what they're talking about, I really am garbage, I need this, I need mm-hmm. these accolades from someone, maybe if I can get this group of friends sit at this lunch table, get in a relationship with that person, that'll make me okay. Maybe if I can get good grades, which I never got good grades, so maybe that would have worked. I doubt it, but, <laughs> but I was always looking for something to add to me to, to complete the whole. I mean, there's a void inside of me that right. should have been filled with... That's a common thing that I hear about is the void. Yeah, and right. Being in recovery myself, I can speak to that void, yeah. trying to fill that void with other people, places, and things mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. That but sounds like you've had a similar experience. That's exactly the way I understand it. Mm-hmm. So when I, I don't think anything started when I first had my drink or when I had my first drink. I think that was a real, I'd finally found something that worked. That void was there, geez, man, for as far back as I can remember, you know. Mm-hmm. All my life, all my life. And when I finally got sober on October 10th, 2005, I'm sorry, October 20th, 2005, the hole didn't disappear. And I've been shoving things in that hole since then, just wasn't drugs and alcohol. And when I'm, when I'm doing well, it's recovery and self-acceptance and holistic spirituality and blah, 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 connection. But in a pinch, obsession, compulsive behaviors, those sorts of things. So, I mean, this is what, when I say addiction is a disease that doesn't go away, it's incurable, this is what I mean. The drug, the alcohol issue, knock on wood, but that appears to be removed. I, I don't think I'm in any tremendous danger of having a drink today. Now, if I 
don't do what I need to do in my recovery, if I don't maintain my recovery program, whatever that looks like, might be getting closer and closer to that drink. But right now, I feel safe and protected. The obsession's been lifted. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a, uh, a hole that needs to be filled and can be filled with all sorts of behaviors and, and this, that, and the other. So that's uh, that's sort of my take on it. And I uh, that's, I suppose you could say that's a bit of a 12, that sort of jives with sort of 12-step philosophy. And I jive with a 12-step philosophy for the most part. I have my issues with that professionally. But that's the way that's the way that I that I make sense of it. You know, I've got a I've got a void that that exists in me that uh, that I try to fill, and uh, you know I fill it when when I'm at my best, I'm filling it with connection and love and compassion and for lack of a better word, God, lowercase G, whatever the hell that means. But when I'm not at my best, when I'm in my selfish, self-centered, or you know, self-pitying mode, or if I just kind of wake up on the wrong side of the bed, I can I can fill it with other things: compulsive behaviors, judgment, anger, anger. Wow, anger! You want to talk about a mood-altering substance, man? Self-righteous anger. Who that feels at least as good as cocaine, if not better. So, so I got to be careful with that stuff too. Absolutely. But yeah. So when you got into treatment, did they help you understand that you had a void? No, no. When I got into treatment, I don't even remember, frankly, what I learned in treatment. I learned that I, that I couldn't smoke marijuana, even though that wasn't my drug of choice. I took those things away. I think, I think the re- and this is to take nothing away from treatment. I, I work in the field of treatment. Of course, I believe in treatment. But my experience in treatment, the main takeaway was a safe space to be for 28 days. And I was in, I had gone to treatment several times. The time when I finally was able to have some success, excuse me, was when I left the inpatient facility, excuse me, and went to a place where I continue to have some support. And my, this is just my experience, it's not everyone's experience, not even most people's experience. I went into a halfway house for several months, um, about six months, where I was still had a tremendous amount of accountability, but also was required, not suggested required, to go out and get a job and that sort of stuff. So I lived in a halfway house for a little bit of time. And then after that, I lived in a, a sober house, which is, I mean, many people know that's a house where five, six, seven other sober dudes live. So I was in some sort of supportive living situation for a year and a half, almost two years, a long time. And I know for a fact that that's why I'm still sober today. Had I, just, had I left inpatient treatment and gone back to wherever I had been, like I'd done the previous times. There's no way of knowing, but there's no compelling reason to believe that I would have maintained anything like lasting sobriety. So accountability and support was helpful. Accountability, accountability, support, and structure. And what I found very helpful was a place to be vulnerable. You know, because I was just like, I mean, I said I was a really, really angry guy, but everybody knows that's just fear. I was afraid of the world. Wow. And um, I was afraid of, oh, I was afraid to take a risk because I might fail, because I would fail. Even if I succeeded, I would fail, if you see my point. And um, I was afraid of other people. I was absolutely afraid of other guys, you know, peers. I couldn't have a conversation with a guy because I'm being judged. I mean, you know, goodness gracious, no. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, what I really learned that was valuable in recovery was how to be vulnerable, how to... Well, this was in Minnesota, so some of the most most important like learning experiences I had was was not 
in treatment or in meetings, it was sitting down on the couch watching the Minnesota Twins game with another dude in early recovery and just kind of shooting the breeze, you know, just connecting to people. And it seems we kind of take that for granted and I can make light of it now, but that was terrifying. That was horrifying. That was nearly impossible. I would have rather gone and committed armed robbery than have a conversation with another guy. My point is that seemed less risky than than just talking to another dude. And, um, and that's the sort of stuff I never learned. You know, I never had that opportunity. Or I had that opportunity. I never took that opportunity because I found my solution at long last, drugs and alcohol, and I didn't need anything else. Hmm. So. Hmm. so what about now? How did you get to this place where you're offering services to people who are suffering in addiction or, or working through their recovery process? How did you get from the guy who is you know, dealing with low self-esteem and fear and anger and using drugs and alcohol and compulsive behaviors to where you are now? Well, when I, um, I was living in a sober house and eventually I had about two years of sobriety and it was time to decide what the heck I was going to do with my life. You know, I didn't have a, uh, I didn't have a much of a career to go back to the way a lot of people do. In a lot of ways I was starting my life at what would that would have been the age 30 or 31. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be near the Hazelden Foundation, which offers the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies. Um, and I'd had such a, you know, the, the, the addiction professionals that I'd come into contact with, you know, had such an important role in my experience and in my recovery. And in some ways I felt that I owed some sort of karmic debt, maybe without sounding too pretentious, but I felt that, you know, I'd been given this tremendous opportunity and this tremendous gift recovery, the ability to access recovery that many, many, many people I know just didn't have or weren't able to take advantage of. Um, People who were smarter than me and more capable than me, more ambitious than me, any quantifiable thing, people who were more of it than I am just didn't get the opportunity that I had. So I felt like just this incredible gratitude and I wanted to repay that debt somehow. This was my thinking at the time. And so I wanted to pursue a you know, pursue a field where I, where I could do just that, and, and I think that I have. So I went to, um, somehow, some way, I managed to graduate from college. I left that out. I had a, I had a bachelor's degree from, I mean, Arizona State, but still still counts. Um, <laughs> so I was able to, I was able to get accepted into graduate school, and so I, I got my master's degree in addiction studies from the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies, and I was on my way, you know, that's how I am. Um, that's how I got into the field. That's how I ended up here in Seattle. Was I, uh, I got a job out here in 2009 and moved out here. So that that was my uh, that was my initial. Uh, that's how I ended up in the field. Was I was repaying a debt that I thought I owed, and the opportunity was was right there to do so. Um, if you ask me why I continue to do it, you might get a different answer. I mean, I my primary motivation, of course, is to be of service and to leave, uh, or as best I can, leave my tiny little corner of the world a little bit better than I found it as a result of my energies, you know, and I'm, I'm not, there's no grandiosity here, but, you know, I feel it's, it's important that I give of myself to the world in some small way, and, you know, I'm not out there curing cancer, and I'm not out there winning the Super Bowl for the Seahawks, but what I do have to contribute is helping some members of the community find their way into a program of recovery which 
in effect improves their lives and the lives of their family and the lives of their loved ones and the lives of their community and you know if butterfly flaps its wings so that's a, that's my motivation is to live geez just leave some good you know, do something i spent 30 years of my life taking and sucking up energy and emotion and resources and just not giving anything back and not being able to give anything back and um and now it's important that i do that it sounds like very meaningful work to you it's very meaningful work to me sometimes i have to remind myself <laughs> how meaningful it is but yeah yeah it's a it's not just a I'm, I'm not just doing a job here i'm doing something that really brings meaning to my life and i make an assumption that you help people understand how they have been impacted by the disease of addiction and maybe that involves looking at their past sure you know uh, identifying some of the roots in their family of origin mm -hmm. and maybe even thinking about some of the biological components which you know might contribute to them being an addict sure yeah absolutely and, and so how long does something like that take what do you what, what do you do what do you say well geez man um it all i mean there's so many variables it takes a while now Everyone, every client that I've ever met with, every client, if I can make a generalization, every client that any counselor has ever met with has started their recovery process before they're sitting in my office. So I don't get them on day one. Right. The recovery process starts before we're even aware that the recovery process started. I didn't know I was in recovery when I was in recovery. Mm -hmm. I knew when I was in sobriety, but my change process began years before I was actually aware of it. So, so it's tough to say how long really anything takes, and also a lot of it has to do with how open someone is and where, where they're focusing their stuff. I mean, it's an important piece. It's not the only piece. I think what's equally important is developing the tools to A, achieve sobriety, which is simply knocking it off, put the plug in the jug, put the drugs away, get sober, and then the more difficult work of, uh, of recovery, which is repairing and restoring those broken bonds and faulty core beliefs and that sort of stuff. So recognizing where that comes from and what's contributed to that, I think that's a part of treatment throughout the entire process. I don't think we reach some level of recognition where a switch is turned and we say, okay, well, now I've got that. Let me move on to the next step. I think that's sort of infused with the entire process from, from day one to, to the end. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate that you make the distinction between sobriety and recovery. Yeah, important distinction. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that. And I think um, a lot of people are fearful about getting into recovery and, and you know, achieving sobriety because they don't think they'll do it right. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So what could you say to the person who's listening right now, mm -hmm. somewhere in the world, who is fearful about getting into recovery and or um, getting uh, sobriety in their lives? What could you say to inspire them that there is no right or wrong way, but just to get in the door? The price of admission is willingness. If I want, if I want to have it, if I'm, if I'm, at my lowest point and I, I'm so far down in the well that I can't see the sun shining in the top, if I have willingness and hope, I've started, you know, and, and I can't fail. If I use again, I haven't failed. If I, if I fall off the wagon, if I say, forget this, I'm out of here and don't come back for five years, I haven't failed because I'm in the process. Now, I can do a lot of damage 
if I decide to go back out or if I do go back out or if I pick up a drink or a drug or start engaging in certain behaviors again, a lot of damage can be done. And all things being equal, I think it's probably best to avoid that, but it's not failure. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't failed. We haven't lost. There's always hope. And I believe this, and I would, I would consider this one of my fundamental beliefs. As long as I'm still, as long as I'm still drawing breath, there's still hope. And I think that's important to recognize because I certainly didn't recognize that when I was at a low point. I, I didn't think there was any hope. You know? There was. Right. I just didn't see it. So what would I say to someone who's struggling with unrealistic expectations of themselves or what recovery is going to require? I would say, dude, you can't mess this up. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> simple and to the point yeah right you can't mess this up and also if i can just something we touched on a little bit earlier that distinction between sobriety and recovery it's crucial that distinction is everything and it's not intuitive i think every person i don't want to generalize but i will i think everyone who comes into recovery or treatment if you ask them on day one of their of of, of, of treatment well what's the problem what's going on in your life they would say i'm getting loaded i'm drinking too much I'm acting out too much. My problem is that behavior, and I need to stop that behavior, and things will get better. And there's a good news, bad news situation. The good news, I suppose, is, yeah, you stop that behavior, and things will get better. The bad news is, stop that behavior. And then there's some serious work to do before we really achieve those, um, until it gets better. Now, the great news, it's a good news, bad news, great news situation. The great news is it gets better in ways we can't even conceive of. So that's what, that's what I think is, is, is important. I came into recovery because I had to stop getting loaded. I was getting high too much. I couldn't stop. So I needed to cut it out, just like lock me away or take all my money away or just do something to separate me from my drink, drug, behavior of choice for a period of time, and then I'll be fine. I really believe that on some level. What I found was, hell no. I got to be locked away. I got I to get some physical sobriety so that I can do the real rewarding work of recovery. A a great metaphor that I think I made up, I'm not sure if I did, but I'm gonna take credit for it. If I am, if I go into a doctor and I say, hey doctor, it hurts when I do this. I'm extending my arm, I'm bending my elbow. Sobriety is, we'll just stop doing this. Recovery is full range of motion. that's, That's something that makes a lot of sense to me. I certainly didn't recognize that early on. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you recognized it. Yeah. So what keeps you sober today? Well, gee, I mean, I have what I consider to be a program of recovery, and it looks very, very different than, um, than it did in the first five years. And FYI, my work as a therapist, as an addiction therapist, not really part, in fact, not part of my recovery program. It's completely separate. Um, my, my experience as a recovering person probably informs the tools that I bring to the table, but my work is not part of my recovery pr- program. Let me rephrase that. The work that I do in the room is not part of my recovery program. The fact that I'm pursuing a livelihood that is satisfying and feeds me on something that I'd consider to be a spiritual way, that's part of my balanced recovery, meaningful work, right livelihood. But, uh, but the work I do when I'm sitting knee to knee with a client it's not part of my recovery program what do i do well i am um, i strive for balance you know mental physical spiritual emotional whatever we want to say 
Um, I, uh, I'm active in various recovery fellowships. Not, I'm not, I don't cling as tightly to those as I did early on. I don't, I don't think that I need to. I don't even know if that would be the wisest use of them. Um, what I do is I strive to keep my life whole and balanced. Um, I, uh, I don't, I recognize what I, I guess I would call them my tendencies to revert, you know, faulty core beliefs about myself and the world and the associated emotions. And I, you know, I learned to challenge them and kind of reframe them. Um, I've, I've developed a new relationship with my thoughts and my emotions. I've developed a new relationship with the world around me and the way that I try to connect to it and the way that I welcome it into my life. Um, that's a short way of, of, of describing what my recovery program looks like. And also self-care, you know, um, I, you know, I take care of myself physically, spiritually, and mentally. Um, and that's, that's pretty important. Good. Well, important, pretty important is not the word. That, that's vital. Yeah. The details change. I mean, what, what my day-to-day recovery looks like today is different than what it looked like two years ago. And it's going to be quite different than what it's going to look like two years from now. Because I'm getting married, which is going to change a lot of things. But I, uh, I strive for balance yeah. and connection and compassion and love and acceptance and joy. Yeah. Instead of anger and fear and judgment and just kind of two middle fingers to the world, which was, that was sort of my default for almost 30 years. Yeah. And it's a process. It's a process. I'm not perfect. Thank God I'm not perfect. Yeah. Progress, not perfection. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Thank God. Yes. Who would want to be perfect? Not me. I don't know why I would do that. It's (laughs) overrated. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't know, but I'll take your word for it. Well, thank you so much for for spending this time with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. And educating us about your practice and your life and your recovery journey. Sure. Um, I appreciate you as a colleague and a friend, and uh, thank you so much for being willing to share. Likewise, I feel the same way, and I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, thanks. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Making an Addict. For all my listeners, I have a special gift for you. I created a seven steps guide to power up your recovery and you can access it today. Go to bit.ly slash seven steps guide. That's bit.ly slash the number seven steps with an S guide. Go ahead and go there now and get your free guide. Sign up for the newsletter and it will be sent to you in your email. Take care. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at djburr1022 and thedjburr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's show featured music by CDK.